We are in middle of the festival of Passover of Pesach, and as I mentioned last week, this week there is no Parsha, because on Shabbos, where we typically would read from the Torah the next Parsha in the book of Leviticus, because it is also Pesach, therefore we read a reading that relates to Pesach, and the next week's Parsha is going to be delayed for another week, and therefore this week there is no Parsha, incidentally, in the land of Israel where they only have one day of the festival. Therefore, the final day of Pesach is Friday. And therefore, Shabbos is already not Pesach anymore in Israel. So we're going to have, for the next upcoming couple of months, it's going to be an unusual situation where our friends, our brethren in the land of Israel are going to be one week ahead of us in the schedule. They're going to continue this week. is going to be Parshas Achrimos, and we're going to get Achrimos the following week, and we're going to be off for a week. But I was thinking... We typically like to do a, a new Parsha podcast every week. There is no Parsha. I could have said, we're not doing a Parsha podcast this week. But I figured I would share with you some idea that maybe you'll find to be valuable and interesting. So on Pesach, there are the two bookends of the festival. You have the first two days of Pesach, which we have the two storm, the Seder night, uh, night number one, number two. And then you have the, the other bookend the end cap of the festival that's going to begin this year on Thursday night. And in the middle, you have the Cholomoid, which is, it's like kind of a hybrid where we're allowed to do work, but it's still Passover. We still eat matzah, etc. And there is a tradition, there's a custom that we like to go, you know, have a good time and celebrate. And we're supposed to drink wine and eat meat. And the kids like going on trips and they don't go to school. Yesterday, I took my my oldest son, Akiva, for his first driving lesson. I took my car. I said, we're going to go find an empty an empty parking lot, and you're going to learn how to drive. And he's like, great, I got this. I have a little scooter. No big deal. I could drive the car. And he did a pretty good job. He only hit one curb. I'm like, stop. You don't see the curb. He's like, I tried to stop, but he hit the accelerator. I said, no big deal. Everyone has that experience. Every new driver has that experience. No big deal. I'm happy you had it. That was last night. He made all these right turns and left turns. Did a great job. Uh, Today, we took him bowling and laser tag. They're having a fantastic time. But yesterday, which is the first day of of Cholomoid, the 17th day of the month of Nisan, is my grandfather, Blessed Mary, his yard site. My grandfather passed away 17 years ago yesterday on the 70th day of Nisan. And we're told, our sages tell us that on the day of someone's passing, it's an opportunity for them to upgrade. Meaning every year that they are departed from this world, they have the opportunity to be elevated one notch higher in heaven. And therefore there's a custom a universal, ubiquitous custom that the entire year after a person passes, their next of kin recite the Kaddish for them. But then every year on the Yartza, on the anniversary of their parting, the the children of the deceased, they, they say Kaddish as well. And there is also a custom to get together and have a celebration and talk about the departed and extol their virtues and their character and their deeds and try to take some lessons from their life and try to emulate, you know, the, the great giants and the great antecedents of our past. So my parents are in town. They're in Houston for Pesach. So we had the whole family get together. We had some other people from the community join. We had a little celebration, a yard site celebration. 
in loving memory of my grandfather. And I want to share with you what I prepared for the assembled. When we talk about my grandfather, you know, we're talking about a real giant. And you think about his life's accomplishments, the voluminous writings, just the, the immense skill and intellect and a person who's always working on, on, on his character, refining, perfecting his character, but also being so prolific in his output, writing all kinds of books that are genre-defining books, but leaving more works in manuscript. He wrote, he wrote around 20, 20 books in his lifetime, but there are at least 20 more books to be published after his passing. You know, he had a great yeshivos, accomplished tremendous things, and was so immensely talented, not just in matters of Torah, but even, even in general knowledge. My father was telling us yesterday, he was saying that he, he had textbooks of medicine and anatomy. And he says once he came home and his stomach was hurting. So his father said, pointed to his abdomen, does it hurt here? Does it hurt here? Or does it hurt here? And he said, it hurts here. He says, it hurts here. You have to go to the hospital right now and give us a call. <laughs> give us a call before they operate on you. And it turns out he had appendicitis and indeed they, uh, they caught it. But again, his father knew that. How did he know that? He wasn't classically trained in medicine, but he was, he was a polymath. He, he was a, a voracious student of knowledge and he wanted to study the Almighty's world and all the Almighty's wisdom and the Almighty's handiwork. So he was an expert in medicine. In addition, he was a real expert, a world-class expert in, in psychology and human nature, but also in psychiatry. In fact, we have today, we have a little, man, it's not little, it's a treatise, a magisterial treatise, which, where he titled it Psychiatry and Religion. And it's an, it's an immense work of tremendous scope and breadth and depth about Torah and Torah philosophy and how it relates to psychiatry. He was also a tremendous linguist. He was fluent in nine languages. What are those languages? Of course, his native German. He, in fact, wrote a book in German at the age of 16. But of course, he spoke Yiddish, which is like a sister language to to German, he had an incredible command. He was a master class in Hebrew. His works in Hebrew, even Israelis. He was, of course, German. He emigrated to Israel in 1946. But his Hebrew was on a level that many native Israelis couldn't understand. That's how polished and perfect it was. He had a friend who he only spoke to him in Danish. And then his French son-in-law, he only spoke to him in French. And during the war, eight years in the war, he was in Sweden and he learned Swedish. And he, in fact, had such a command of that language that he was able to write a book in Swedish that we actually have. We have this book that he wrote in Swedish talking about the principles of Torah and, and, and Judaism and, and why it's important to maintain our fidelity to our religion in Swedish for the Jewish Swedes. But finally, this what this what this takes the cake for me. My father was telling us yesterday in uh, in high school in Germany, in Berlin, he learned the classics. So he was proficient in Greek and Latin. My father, my father said a story that I never knew before. 
he said that there were two students in his yeshiva in Israel who grew up in, in non-observant Jewish homes. They grew up non-observant, but then they became more observant to the degree they even went to yeshiva, and they became very close to my to my grandfather. And their family, you know, was less observant, but when their sister got engaged, my grandfather was participating in the engagement party, and she had studied Latin. She had studied Latin in university or in school. So my grandfather said, I'm going to give a speech in Latin. And he gave a speech that only the bride-to-be understood in Latin. So I'm looking back at my grandfather. I'm like, he's so much more accomplished in every area than me. And it's astonishing that he accomplished so much, even though he was very methodical. One of his hallmarks was doing everything very carefully and mindfully and slowly. You would ask him a question. He would never spit out an answer. He always think about it and ruminate upon it and work. He worked slowly, really. Yet he accomplished so much. So the thought that I had is, how did he accomplish so much? How did he accomplish so much? What were, like, what was his philosophy on tackling the opportunities and the challenges of life? And I want to suggest maybe a theme that I found in many places in his writing, but also a theme that he exhibited in his work and in his life. And even though, you know, his accomplishments and his talent, I think exceeds the average person by a lot. He was, he was a real genius. He was a genius who deployed all of his energy to accomplish great things. But the format of how he viewed the opportunities in life and the initiatives that we can take in life, his philosophy, I think we could perhaps emulate and adopt it could be very helpful for us in our lives. So I saw an amazing letter that he wrote. This is for for someone who was becoming a mashdiach in a high school. Now, what does a mashdiach mean? In the modern the modern yeshiva world, the yeshiva is headed by it's almost like headed by by there's two co CEOs of the yeshiva. There's the rosh yeshiva, who's really like the the boss in charge of everything. He gives the Talmud lectures, and then you have the mashdiach, who's like the 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 dean, as it's called. He's more like the spiritual guide for the students. That was the innovation of the Musr movement where there's not just someone who's there to teach the Talmud and the advanced analytical approach towards Talmud. There's also someone who's there to develop the character of the students and to give them kind of a, a Musr ethics, refining character, guiding them to develop themselves into, into true Torah scholars. So my grandfather was in all the yeshivas that he founded and ran. He was the mashtiach and he was the spiritual dean. And there was a letter that I found where a young budding mashtiach, spiritual dean, was writing to him with his questions and with his dilemmas. So the first part of this letter, I found it to be very interesting. He's explaining what is the primary role of someone who's there in a yeshiva in a capacity as a mashtiach. The foundation of it all is that the children, the students, should have supervision. And then he added, the problems that face the yeshiva world today, they're much stronger lately than they were in the past because there's been an infiltration of the atmosphere, of the spirit of the general world at large that has infiltrated into our world. 
And therefore, it's much harder to insulate and to protect these young yeshiva students because those influences are infiltrating. And therefore, it's much more difficult the job you have to do right now, which I found to be very interesting. That's the foundation. You're, you're there to prevent bad, harmful, deleterious influences to corrupt the atmosphere of the yeshiva and of the students. But then he says, he's addressing the person who's writing the letter. He's like, you feel you're not worthy for this task. You know what I want to tell you? I'm also not worthy for my test. At the time he's writing this, he's renowned as one of the great rabbis in the land. And he's been heading yeshiva for decades. And he has written already books that have been widely adopted as foundational works of their kind. But he writes, I'm not worthy for my test. But today, due to the really downtrodden state of the Jewish people, every one of us is in a situation where there's no men and there's a place where there's no men, there's no one to do the job, you have to be that person. When there is a degradation of the society and there's just no one who is up to the task of leading the nation or of leading the yeshiva, you have to step up to the plate. This is based upon a Mishnah in Perkri Avos. The Mishnah tells us if there's no men, if there's no one there, no one to take responsibility, if there's no leaders to step forward, you have to step up to the plate and you have to be the one to do it. So this is an idea that he's saying that he didn't feel that he was qualified for his position, but he was almost forced into it due to the fact that there's really no one else to do the job. And I, I, I sometimes look around at our society and I'm thinking, you know, how many yeshiva students, for example, do they have a, a, a leader or an influencer who said, I'm going to take you and I'm going to develop your potential and I'm going to make something out of you. I'll make you a Torah scholar. I'll make you I'll ref- help you refine your character. I'll really work on molding and crafting you into the best person you can become. I once asked some some friends of mine in the yeshiva, I said to them, did you ever have someone like that? Did you have a rebbe, uh, a teacher, an influence who said, I'm going to make you my project and I'm going to really develop every part of, of who you are. I'm going to develop all your potential. And they all said, no. They were kind of on their own. It's a scary thing. It's a scary thing that there has been a dearth or a paucity at least of people who are willing to take responsibility to say, I'm going to be a leader. I'm going to be in charge. Even though I'm not worthy, I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to try to help develop these young people, these young men into what they can actually become. He claimed he was not worthy for it. He wasn't qualified, but there was just no one else to do the job, and therefore he did it. That's in a letter that he wrote to a young Mashiach. Now, in the introduction to Aleishur Volume 2, Aleishur is considered to be his magnum opus. He wrote Volume 1 in 1966. In the introduction, he says he's been working on the book for 13 years. So he worked on it a long time. And then in 1986, incidentally, the year was born, he wrote Volume 2. Now, Volume 1 and Volume 2 are very different books. Volume 1 is much more abstract. It's written much more succinctly. It's a very different style. 
He's expecting more of the reader to understand what he's saying, to put the pieces together, to know how to implement the ideas that he's coming in the book. Volume two is the exact opposite. He actually develops the idea into the most practical component of implementation of his ideas. And therefore, they're very different styles and people who are familiar with both books, you can tell a lot about a person by asking them which one of these books do they prefer. But in the introduction to volume two, he's trying to justify why he wrote such a book. Now, this is a very thick book and it's enormous in its scope. And he himself defines it as a Shulchan Aruch, which is the, the name of the book of the Code of Jewish Law. But a Shulchan Aruch means a set table. Everything that you need to know about how to develop your character through the lens of Musser is found in volume two of Aleishur. And he says, he tries to justify why he wrote it. He says, people who are, are old, the grizzled veterans, the people that had some experience in the rich yeshiva world that preceded World War II. They're going to get to this book and they're going to open this book and they're going to say, everything that you're writing over here is so basic and so obvious and so well known. Everyone knows this. There's no reason for you to write it. Moreover, they're going to have a second critique. They're going to say, you took such lofty ideas and you made them so simple and so basic. The people who have had the experience of the pre-war yeshiva world, they're going to have problems with this book. Please, writes the author, my grandfather, judge me favorably. The generation has degraded compared to the generation before the war. And people's capacities and strengths and abilities have been depleted. And therefore, we cannot demand of young students today what was demanded of them then. Moreover, you may think, well, the author himself did not spend so much time in the pre-war yeshiva world. And who knows if he didn't make many mistakes. Nevertheless, I'm going to tell you why I wrote this book. I am a layperson, writes my grandfather, and I'm jumping ahead of the line only because the people who are greater than me did not write this book. Our generation is like an orphan generation, and I am one of the few people that are preserving this method of pedagogy and development of students. And it seems to me that by writing this book, I'm fulfilling what the Mishnah tells us, in a place where there's no people, Hishtadel Lios Ish. Where there's no people, where there's no leaders, where no one's willing to step up, then it's your job. The Almighty has placed that upon your shoulder. And you know what? Concludes this paragraph. Im if you made a mistake, if the author made a mistake, God will forgive. Hopefully, please, God will forgive me. My grandfather never felt qualified. He, he himself was. You know, he arrived in the Mir Yeshiva in 1934. He spent four years in the great Mir Yeshiva before the war. And then he had to leave as a German national. He had to leave Poland, ended up, of course, in Sweden. But four years, is that's not a comprehensive education. 
And then he writes this book that covers the entirety. He himself writes that. This is the entirety of the Torah Shabal Peh, he calls it. There's the Torah Shabal Sav, there's the written Torah of the Musar movement, and then there's the oral Torah of the Musar movement. This is the writing down of Lamishna, the equivalent, so to speak. The writing down, the codification of the corpus of oral Torah of the Musar movement. And I wrote it because there was no one else to do it. And again, I don't feel qualified. I don't feel like I'm the right person to do it. Who knows how many mistakes I did, but no one else did it. So I had to do it. I think this is an interesting approach for all of us who tend to feel, you know, imposter syndrome. Who are we to do things? You know, someone has to nominate me. If you see a need, if you see a void, if you see something that's not been taken care of, that is a message from the Almighty. We believe that, that it's your job to do it, even if you perhaps feel unqualified. I found another letter. These are not well-known letters where he writes that when his first daughter was born, my grandfather had three daughters and then two sons. My father's the oldest son. When his eldest daughter was born, she has actually since passed. He says, I was thinking, when a person becomes a father, he feels that the Almighty is giving him something to watch over, something to be a, a custodian over, something to to shepherd, something to be responsible for, and you're responsible for this. This is your mission in life. You have to take care of this child. You have to bear the burden of this child in every situation. This is what the Almighty appointed you to do. When you have a child, that is a vote of confidence from God where God is extending to you this mission, you're responsible for this child. You have to raise this child. Again, this is similar to the idea that I think it was one of the hallmarks of of how he viewed his his role in, in the world. When he was positioned to do a certain job, he, in fact, stood up to the task. So I think that's the, that's the first part of, of, of how he accomplished all the great things that he did. A, he had this deep understanding that when the Almighty puts you in a, in a, in a place, in a position, when my positions you to do great things or to undertake great initiatives, that is a vote of confidence from God, you can do it. But secondarily, he also worked really, really hard. I don't know anyone who worked as hard as he did. He was always immersed in thought. Always. There was once, he was once by a, I think it was a bar mitzvah. And whenever he would go to a bar mitzvah, because he was considered to be a very important rabbi, they would tell him to go to the front and to have a, a seat by the dais. So he was once there, and he was talking to someone else who was like a, a famous rabbi. And the rabbi confided in him. He says, I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to do. They just told me that they want me to speak, to give a to give a speech in honor of the bar mitzvah, but I didn't prepare a speech before I came here. So my grandfather was really puzzled by that. He says, I understand. All you need to do is to say out loud what you're thinking in your mind. He always had a speech brewing because his mind was, was constantly active. He was always thinking, always immersed in some surium, in some, in some matter, in some, in some, in some idea. And therefore he always had a speech because he's always working through something. And if you're called to speak, that's what you say. Incidentally, 
This is my favorite story of my grandfather. There was one time in the yeshiva where he didn't have a speech prepared. I've said the story before, but I have to say it again because it's my favorite story. And it relates to this idea I'm trying to convey here. Every week, the Rosh Hashiva in a yeshiva has a responsibility. He has to give the shir klali, which means the, like the general lecture, the general discourse. And that's based upon the Talmud that they're studying in that week. He's responsible to give the lecture. And then the mashgiach, the spiritual dean, he has to give the musr shmuz, he has to give the musr lecture every week. It's every week for years and decades, my grandfather would give a brand new lecture, a brand new discourse, and we have thousands upon thousands of them because he wrote them all down with, with German punctiliousness, wrote them down exactly perfectly. We have notebooks, handwritten notebooks where he wrote hundreds of pages all by hand. Never once is there a word crossed out. Everything was so organized in his mind that he just, he never had to cross things out. He just wrote it out and it was all perfect. So he did this thousands of times. But there was one, there was one week that no matter how hard he tried to prepare a lecture, he had nothing to say. And the clock is ticking because at seven o'clock he has to go to the yeshiva and everyone's going to be sitting down waiting for his lecture and he's nothing to say. And, Seven o'clock is around the corner. He has nothing to say. He doesn't know what to do. So he puts on his rabbinic hat and rabbinic frock coat and he walks to the yeshiva. He's in the hands of the Almighty now. And he gets to the yeshiva and something happens that never happened before and never happened afterwards. It's an unbelievable story. Never happened before, never happened afterwards. The Rosh Yeshiva, his partner in leading the yeshiva, comes over to him and says, I have a very unusual request. My father-in-law's in town and he really wants to speak to the yeshiva. Would it be okay if he takes over your pulpit if he speaks in your stead? All of your talents is what he might gives you to accomplish what he wants you to accomplish. And every once in a while, he'll just, he'll just close those shutters and you don't know why. And it's to teach you a lesson that when the shutters are opened, when the wellsprings are flowing, that is not your handiwork. Of course, you have to put in your hard work, but that comes from God. Never happened before, never happened again. The only time he's completely tongue-tied, the man says, okay, I I tied your tongue because today you don't need to speak, but next week when your tongue is untied, you should know where it comes from. Everything... In life, the career path, the, the life steps that we take comes from the Almighty. Hamechin mitzadei gavar. We say in the morning blessings, we thank God who prepares the steps, the footfalls of man. The Almighty positions us to do what we need to do. But that does not absolve us of doing work. My grandfather was always immersed in work. I saw in one of his letters, the letter was dated... The 13th day of the month of Av, so it's four days after Tishbav. And typically when Tishbav ends, that's when you have a three-week vacation between the semesters in the yeshiva, the Benazmanim. And he's writing a letter. He used to get tons of letters from yeshiva students and from rabbis all across the country, all across the world. And we, in fact, have published two volumes of his letters. But one of them, it's, it's addressed 
to this person, 13th day of, of the month of Av. And he writes, he says, I know you sent me a letter seven months ago. I'm telling you there hasn't been a single day where I wasn't completely packed with work that I was able to write a response to you. So please forgive me for my tardy response because I've been so immersed with all the work that I need to do. This is the first day in seven months that I have time to sit down and respond to your letter. He told my brother, my oldest brother, Eli, who also founded a yeshiva. He said to him, they were very close. I, when, I, when my grandfather passed away, I was, I was 18. But my older brother is, I don't know, 10 years older than me. So he was very close to my grandfather. And he always told me, he says, when you want to go into the rabbinate, become a Rosh Hashiva. It's way easier than becoming a Mashiach. Why? Because the yeshiva cycle, it's a five-year cycle where they they go through like around 10 or 15 different books of Talmud. And the yeshiva has to give a lecture every week on that particular part of Talmud. But once you do five years of preparing those lectures, every fifth year, you could just go back to your notes from five years ago. But if you're a mashtiach and every week you have to give a, a Musser lecture, you can't just take old stuff and recycle it. It's much easier to be Rosh Hashiva, just do that, to choose that to repent. Don't make the same mistake I made. Now, the ironic part about this is that my brother, when he opened up Yeshiva, he took the position of the Mashiach, not the Rosh Hashiva position. But again, for, for 50, more than that, more than that, more than 50 years, every single week, a brand new lecture. His lectures weren't just a quick idea. They were, they were developed ideas, ideas that he worked on for years sometimes. He would say that, that sometimes, sometimes it took him 10 years to develop a lecture, one lecture. Of course, it doesn't mean that's the only thing you're working on, but it means that these ideas germinate within you and they develop and they percolate within you until you actually develop an idea and it's, and it's real. It's not just, you're not, you know, parroting over some, some, some thought. You, you, you have filtered the idea within you. It's changed you. And now you want to show others how this idea can change them as well. So he worked really hard, but nevertheless, he never forgot that it all came from the Almighty. That my positioned him to do what he was set out to do. And all of his success came from the Almighty. When he started his yeshiva, so he started Shiva in 1948. Now today, Israel is a first world country. Israel has like a higher GDP per capita than like England and France. It's a very rich, rich country. 1948, it, it was a third world country. You know, and they, they had shortages of everything. They didn't have their industries. They were under constant threat of destruction from their Arab neighbors. And there wasn't food in the yeshiva. They didn't have food. They didn't have money. They didn't have nothing. So things were so dire that there was actual starvation. This is this is after the war. Actual starvation in the yeshiva. And my grandpa says, "How can I open it? How can I have such a yeshiva? How can I do that?" So there's one story that I've I've told in the past. He went to the chazanish. Chazanish told him to start the yeshiva. Chazanish was the greatest rabbi of the generation. My grandfather was only 36 when he started his yeshiva. He was young. Actually, he was younger. He was 34. <laughs> I guess I'm older than him now. That's scary. That is terrifying. So he was young, but the Chazanish, who was the, the greatest rabbi of the generation, says, you have to start this yeshiva. 
And then after a couple of months or a couple of years, he went to the chazan and says, I, I can't do it. I, I don't have any, I don't have any funds. I, I can't pay for bread for my students. How can I have a yeshiva? So the chazan says, come back to me next week. Next week he gave him an envelope. He says, I fundraised for you, which is just a shocking thing. In my Jewish history podcast where I spoke about the Chazanish, I told over this story, the greatest rabbi of the generation is fundraising for some young schnook, as they say, who, who opened the yeshiva. But I think um, sometime later, he went to the Briskarov, the Revelvula Brisk. I, th- I think that's who it was with. It might have been with the Chazanish as well. I don't remember the details of the story. And he said to him, things have gotten so, so, so bad. So he told him when the Jewish people, when they split the sea, we know that we're going to celebrate the end of Pesach. We celebrate the splitting of the sea. The seventh day of Pesach coincides when the Jewish people were cornered by Pharaoh, jumped into the water, and the water split. But the water didn't split instantly. Nachshon was the first one to jump in. The waters arrived up to his nostrils. And then when he couldn't walk any further without drowning, that's when they split. And in fact, our sages tell us that it didn't split completely. It split Gradually, so you had to constantly jump into your nostrils and then it's a little more. But there's this principle, the might does miracles for us. But only once we've gone to the absolute nth degree, once the water is by your nostrils, that's when it splits. Only after you've exhausted all of the possible efforts that you can do, only then does the Almighty intervene and say, let me make a miracle for you. We have to believe in ourselves. Because if the Almighty puts us in a position to do something really important, we should not feel like we're not qualified. Who are we to do it? We're not qualified. We're accepting that we're not qualified. You're not qualified. I'm not qualified. None of us are qualified. Nevertheless, if there's no one else to do it, there's something that needs to be done. If there's an important mission of the Jewish people that needs to be undertaken, and you find yourself situated that you potentially can do it, that means the money wants you to take a swing at it. And the way you do that, number one, you got to work really, really, really hard. Even though the Almighty, of course, is the reason for all of our successes, is the reason for all of our triumphs, nevertheless, we have to work really hard. It's only once the water is by our nostrils, only then does the waters split. This is some of my thoughts uh, to share from my grandfather's life on the 17th anniversary of his passing. I remember that day very, very vividly. I even wrote about it in the introduction of my new book, Upon a Ten-Stringed Harp, about the experiences that I had with him on that Seder night. It was just me and him in the hospital. Somehow I ended up there. It was just me and him for the Seder night. And uh, he gave me a probably maybe it was the last blessing that he gave in his lifetime. He gave it to me at 3 a.m. It was it was a very difficult uh, time. This is Israeli hospitals. There's three patients in one room, and his his hearing aid was making noise, and the guy next door was going crazy. And it was really difficult because every position he was in pain in all the positions. And at 3 a.m., I sat down on the floor, and he I said Saba, which means grandfather, grandpa. Give me a bracha, give me a blessing. And he gave me a, a wonderful blessing, which I chronicled in the introduction to my new book. It's been 17 years. Just an incredible person. A wonderful inspiration. His books, I encourage anyone who reads Hebrew to read them voraciously like I do. But just someone who lived such a life, you know, grew up in Germany, 
His, his family was, his mother was very observant, very righteous, but his father was not. And he found his way somehow to Poland, of all places, the backwaters of Poland, to the great Mir Yeshiva. And someone, you know, with, with these kinds of, you know, inauspicious, inglorious beginnings became one of the great rabbis of the 20th century. I don't think that's a stretch to say, of course, I'm biased. I would say he's the greatest rabbi of the 20th century. Of course, I would say that. But someone who legitimately was considered by the other great Torah sages as one of, one of their peers, one of the great Torah sages of, of, of his time. When he passed away in 2005, there were 100,000 people that came to his funeral on Pesach. And his, his books are found in every Jewish library, every Jewish library. And his students are found in many of the great yeshivos until today. Someone who had tremendous accomplishments, but notwithstanding the fact that, you know, his accomplishments, when we try to compare our small, pitiful accomplishments, we, we're nothing. But this idea where you don't have to feel like you are qualified, you're not qualified. They might have positioned you to do it. You got to work really hard and only after you work really hard, only then will you hit pay dirt. I think that format he exhibited in his life and that's some lesson that we can take away. You know, it's a, it's a day later. If It's been a day since his 17th yard site. But uh, my hope is that this idea you find uh, helpful, useful, inspiring, informative, and uh, my hope in the merit of this, uh, may his soul be elevated, Rabbi Shlomo ben Moshe, and uh, may we all take a page out of his book, maybe even quite literally by reading some of it, and uh, may we be inspired by this great uh, personality. As always, my address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com.